This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. When a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it himself, themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sparky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump. They'd wait until everybody was locked up, and he would open his door and run down to cell one and get a bugler can full of Sparky and take it back to his cell. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, Kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Stool Pigeon Saturday. Today we have a special guest, historian and author Stephen Branting. Mr. Branting has an impressive collection of publications and awards for his scholarship in Idaho history. In 2011, he received the highest award given by the Idaho State Historical Society, the prestigious Esto Perpetua Award. He also received the year's outstanding Cultural Tourism Award for his showcase of Idaho's heritage. In 2013, he was the first Idahoan ever to be awarded the Historical Preservation Medal from the National Society of the Daughters of the American Revolution. He's the author of an eight-volume history of Lewiston, including two books focused on women's organizations of that city. During your next visit to the Old Pen, pick up a copy of his book, Wicked Lewiston, full of fascinating stories about Lewiston's lurid past. Readers of the Lewiston Tribune may recognize his name for over 100 columns he wrote for the 125-year commemoration of people and events from Lewis Clark State College in 2018, for whom he serves as the institutional historian. Today, he's going to discuss the extensive research he did on Margaret Hardy that resulted in an article titled A Hellish Truth Seen Too Late in the November-December 2017 edition of Nostalgia Magazine. Regular listeners will remember that Sky actually covered Margaret Hardy's story in episode 13. Uh, But please welcome Stephen Branting as he brings new light to the dark story of Margaret Hardy. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Stephen? Well, I am... uh... A graduate of Lewiston High School, uh, 1966. So I'm a kind of local person. Took my bachelor's degree from uh, Lewis Clark Normal, which is, of course, Lewis Clark State College today. That's my undergraduate, graduate training, <laughs> University of Idaho, just about everywhere, you know, around this part of the region. And then uh, came back to, went and t- taught in the public schools and spent uh, more than 30 of years of my teaching working with gifted children where I had to write curriculum, implement curriculum, do teacher training. I was also a cartographer for the Lewis Clark Bicentennial because I had been trained in satellite mapping over the years, and so I still taught that. I taught uh, creative thinking, just a lot of different things because I took my bachelor's degree in liberal arts, so I had a lot of background, foreign languages, history, psychology. Yeah. So I got thrown a lot of stuff. It really worked very nicely. I would recommend doing that with anybody. Take a, take a good well-rounded bachelor's degree, and then specialize as you go in your uh, postgraduate. Mm-hmm. But I, I retired in 2009, uh, and then two years ago, uh, after extensive writing, uh, the president of Lewis Clark State College, who was retiring, said, uh, would you like to be an institutional historian? 
And I, we had talked about it a little bit before. And I said, yeah, I think I'd like to do that for a few years until, you know, my health gives out. I'm, I have Parkinson's disease. And so I have to be careful. So I don't, that's why I told you when we talked about this, about coming to Boise, that's a little difficult. Yeah, sure. absolutely. So I, uh, what would you like to know about uh, Mrs. Hardy? What turns you on to her story? Yeah. What made you want to study her? I was writing a book called, as you mentioned, a Wicked Lewiston, and had not really intended to write about her. I was doing other topics, but the problem was when I did some research on the old penitentiary website that has the, the catalog they came out with, which was so valuable to me, I began working with them on uh, mugshots. That's where it started. Oh, okay. But there was a section on women, and I thought, well, my goodness, let's, let's do a little searching on this to find if there are any women involved in Lewiston or Nespers County, because you could sort it by that. And when I found it, I found this Margaret Hardy. Well, in 1895, when this story kind of took place, when I first started writing about it in 2015, there were, there were articles about her both in, in two newspapers. There were two newspapers in Lewiston at the time, and both of them were carrying the story of the trial. That got me really intrigued, because this wasn't a normal story. This wasn't a matter of a woman killing another woman or killing her husband. This was a matter of a woman killing a two-year-old right. who was right. between two and three years old at the time. Uh, Henrietta Myers, who was a little, what they call as mulatto. She was uh, biracial, okay, what we would say today. And because of that, and I was very intrigued. But in 2015, the information on her was quite limited. Uh, there were two factors involved. First of all, there was an adoption. And I'll explain that. Secondly, she was in the state asylum. And because of not so much HIPAA, but because of state laws, uh, you need court orders. So it took me one court order to get the first story started. And then when I came back to it a couple of years later to say, you know, I don't think I got all this story. There's got to be more to it. It took another court order in order to open the whole story. And that finally did open it up. So that, that gave me uh, a, a lot more ammunition to really tell a story for that. Well, Margaret Hardy, I know that when they put the book together, and I was so pleased to see a book come out from the uh, the old penitentiary people, uh, ISHS, I, and I just say old penitentiary because that's really what it was. Yeah. It's helpful to me. I, I saw the book and I thought, oh yeah, and I saw that you wrote this book, and I did a little work on Margaret Hardy. Well, the problem is, I wish they said, I wish we'd known about this before we wrote right. the book. Yeah. Because I traced her back to the 1850s. Uh, she was born about 1850 in St. Louis. And by the time the Civil War was over, she was working the streets of St. Louis mm -hmm. as a prostitute and became what they called a procurus, which really is nothing more than a, a running a brothel. Mm -hmm. uh, she was making a lot of money. She was described as very, very difficult to deal with, which we found that out pretty early. In <laughs> she was not easy to deal with. <clears throat> and she moved west to, to Utah as a young woman and then uh, finally ended up in Aspen, Colorado. Her husband, Harvey, they, she said they were married. Turns out they weren't. It was a common oh, Nothing formal okay. about it. Uh, it wasn't not until the 1890s was it formal. Anyway, in the 1870s, they went off, they took off for South Dakota in the, the Badlands uh, for another, another gold strike because Harvey was a miner and he followed the strikes and, and never made much money. Mm -hmm. But she got up there and she was always had money. And she, she would say later that... Uh, she built houses and then rented them out. What she did was she was building brothels and renting them out to madams who were paying here this huge amounts of rental money because he was making them. 
Well, by 1883, the, the tongues in Aspen were starting to wag, as I described in my article. And she got very upset about it and said, you quit talking about it. You know, I was not doing this. Well, the evidence was all there. And she finally kind of ran her welcome out. You know, she passed herself off as a nurse. And indeed, I have the document, a copy of the document, when she was, when she was uh, actually admitted to the state penitentiary. I, the document is still in existence. And it says her occupation was a nurse. But how she got that training, I think it was just more like she just, she ran a boarding house. And uh, there was a, 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 I can't remember his last name, I have to think William, I think it was Balderton, who was uh, the editor of the Boise newspaper, ran across, he crossed paths with her twice. He was the editor of the Aspen newspaper, and then also Boise, the she mm. So the pair finally leave Colorado and went to Oregon around Pendleton. Well, Margaret, or Maggie as we call her, was heavily addicted to morphine and ended up in the Keeley Institute, which used to be down in Forest Grove, Oregon. <clears throat> they were gonna build a Keeley Institute here in Lewiston in what we call the orchards. The plan fell apart. Because even in the 1880s and 90s, people were needing these uh, rehabilitation facilities to get them off morphine, cocaine, heroin. I mean, Coca-Cola had cocaine in it at the time. Uh, yeah. Women were heavily addicted to some of these substances, housewives. So they were building this, and she went off there, and they treated her, and she got out. Well, it wasn't long before morphine hit again, and she became very, very irrational and was sent off to the state asylum in Salem, but then was released again. And that's what and how they ended up in Moscow, Idaho. It was all after this had developed, and she and Harvey got married in the 1890s. And so they're now legally married, and they show up. And she, there, there are a couple of references, and I found this only because of documents when she was institutionalized. And it said there was a son involved, but who the son mm. was, we don't know. Because on that document, it says she has a son, but she said she said it had an adopted brother living mm. in uh, Colfax, Washington. Mm -hmm. Now, I've done a search of the Colfax newspapers, and I don't see any record of it. He was a Simpson. That was her maiden name, Margaret Simpson. But I don't know the situation. That's another story that uh, I don't know whether it's worth the rabbit hole to go down, but yeah. at least that's it. Well, yeah, we tried. You, you tried. I mean, yeah, you, you found that kind of stuff too. I'm surprised I found as much as I did. Well, in the fall of 1894, she and Harvey moved to Lewiston. And they, she took up her trade down here. When she was in Moscow, and as I outlined in the article I sent you, uh, she'd already gained a reputation of being very difficult. The law was working with her all the time. She was constantly right. Very antagonistic woman. People around her were afraid of her. Uh, she was a large woman, uh, as I noticed, 5'6", 275 pounds by the time she made the penitentiary. She was an intimidating lady. Okay? She was Ma Kettle with a kind of a, a mean streak. And the Ma Kettle's an old reference. I don't know. <laughs> Ma Pa Kettle. <clears throat> so they come to Lewiston and Harvey, that we had a black brothel here. Anna Woods was a, a prostitute at it, and she had a little girl who was Henrietta Myers. Now, Henrietta had a different name, Myers. Who was the father? I've always wondered that. And why, when Margaret found Harvey fooling around with Anna, yeah. uh, she said that the only reason she didn't shoot him is she, he ran too fast. That's basically what it was. <laughs> he, he took off, and she didn't get a chance to kill him. She probably wouldn't. Well, she hatches a plot. And that plot is, I'll ruin the woman by taking away her daughter. 
Now, see, children didn't uh, live at, at brothels. They uh, were like foster children. Yeah. Uh, we have records of the children of the children of prostitutes going to the public school clear back in the 1870s. They're specifically mentioned because madams were very wealthy. When you look at the records for disposable and investment income in the 1870s, the women who were brothel owners in Lewiston were not unlike other places, were some of the wealthiest people in all of Northern Idaho. They were, in today's money, fabulously wealthy, into the millions of dollars. So their children went to public schools, but the children lived in little foster care. And the, like in, when I taught, I taught Norfino, Idaho, when I first started teaching. <laughs> in Norfino, Idaho, there's a place called the Rex down on Main Street. It was a notorious brothel. Whenever the yearbook or the high school needed new band, band uniforms, you know where they got a lot of money donated. They were heavily invested. They heavily invested in their communities, and that's what kept things going for years and years. Wallace, Idaho, is the classic example. I was just going to say Wallace. Oh, yeah, notorious. I mean, they had the last stoplight on I ninety. They had a funeral for it when they took it down. (laughs) Very unusual. So Margaret comes to Lewiston, and she gets a local judge to let her adopt this little girl who was not even three years old. And she took her back to Mo- Moscow and to a house out by the, the Moscow Cemetery. I don't know if you've ever been to Moscow. It's on the Troy Road, just a little bit out east of town. And she had a little place out there and she began telling people she was going to kill the girl. Just yeah. this little talk. People were trying to dissuade her. She says, no, I'm going to, I'm going to kill her. I'm going to kill Harvey. I'm going to kill Anna. Then I'm going to kill myself. And it was just completely over the top. She was making yeah. no secret of this. Well, one day in February of 1895, the little girl turns up dead. And it turns out that when all the dust settles, uh, that uh, Margaret had given the little girl morphine. Well, she had plenty of an honor. They found an honor when they arrested her, put her in jail in Moscow. And then once the girl was under the effect of the morphine, which didn't take much for a small child, she poured carbolic acid down her. Mm -hmm. And carbolic acid was a very popular form of suicide time. I have a number of other cases where people uh, use carbolic acid, which is not a pleasant way to commit suicide. It just eats your insides out. That's what it does. And smeared it all over her face. It ate one of her eyes out. Uh, We don't even know where the little girl's buried. I've talked to the Moscow people. Mm. They have no record of where they buried that little girl. There was no autopsy. No, nothing was done. And that was one of the one of the, her, her attorneys tried to get her off saying there was no autopsy. You can't even prove that the girl didn't drink it. That was one of their ploys. They were trying everything to get her off. Well, long story short, she got convicted, but not a first degree murder. They had thought she was going to plead insanity because she, because she was. There's no doubt about it. She was mostly disturbed. She'd always been that way. But they, they went to trial. And they got her on second-degree murder because nobody wanted to hang a woman. Mm -hmm. I think from your research down there, you know that the first woman in the Idaho Penitentiary wasn't white. The record shows she was a little Indian woman, Native American, that Margaret was the first white prisoner. There were no women in the penitentiary, all these men, and what were they going to do? Well, she... she Well, she acted out during the trial. She screamed and yelled at people. She put on quite a show. She goes to prison down in, in Boise, and boy, it really took off. Mm-hmm. And in the article, I, I hope you enjoyed the point where she tried to set fire at the place. Yeah. <laughs> the guy in the next cell was screaming, 
He thought the, the fiends of hell were going to burn him up. And there she was sitting in her cell, just sitting there smiling. She, she, was, she was a firebug, a morphine addict, and, you know, what, what are you going to do? Well, it took a long time to get her into Blackfoot. That was one of the problems, uh, because the people in Blackfoot, Dr. Givens, wasn't quite sure she was insane. They mm-hmm. thought maybe she was putting on a show for them. And yeah. that's happened. Of course it is. Because people were being sent to the, to the Blackfoot Asylum for a lot of odd reasons. All you have to do is do a little Googling and look at the, the conditions people were, uh, that were accused of doing or were doing in their private lives and were sent to asylums for, like women who were reading novels all the time. That was <laughs> We're going to this insane asylum. So they finally got into the insane asylum. And, you know, we have a little bit of records. The key record, however, that really started to, this thing was when I got a court order from the district court in the Blackfoot area and got the asylum to open up all their archives, anything yeah. dealing with her. They didn't know she was buried there because they have no burial records. We thought yeah. she may have died and bear, was buried there. But that turned out not to be true. They said she was dead. And that's all they said. They didn't date the comment or anything. Mm. The last record was 1900, and they left it there. And I thought, oh, my goodness. What does this mean? She's dead. And so we thought, okay, let's go into the graveyard. So we went into the graveyard, tried to search for nothing, no record. I got to thinking, there has to be a denouement to all of this. She has to show Mm -hmm. something. In the late 1890s, the state of Idaho began questioning why certain people were in the state asylum. And sometime after 1900, when the census was taken of Blackfoot, she's listed in that census. She's listed as married, and she disappears. So sometime, she doesn't in the 1910, so sometime between 1900 and 1910, Maggie Hardy disappears in one way or another. And after just days and days of digging into old newspapers, I found her, that she had returned to Pendleton area mm. and had become a housekeeper. Okay. And she had, a cabin had burned down and when they got into the cabin, they found her. She was Im- immolated, incinerated. Oh. She had pro- more than likely had taken morphine, was in the house, the owner was away, he was a big mining uh, entrepreneur, so he was gone on some business. It's quite possible that she was had taken morphine, uh, embers or a log rolled out of the fireplace, something, and she was so incapacitated she couldn't take care of it. Yeah. She, she burned up. That was it. Now, what happened to Harvey? I can't tell you. Harvey disappeared too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, long right. so they're just a... That's kind of the, the timeline. And if you read my first, in, in Wicked Lewiston, you read the last chapter, it's called She's Come Undone. Mm-hmm. It, it really starts in Moscow, and it ends in Blackfoot. But there's so much more of the story took place in Colorado and yeah. Oregon. And then it came, went to Blackfoot, and then back to Oregon, and to find that, that basically she had died in a house fire. Oh, and yeah. that kind of corroborated some of the things concerning dates and... Uh, uh, but there, uh, as I was talking to Skye, uh, I would love to see a photograph of her. Yeah. That was the first question I asked of the old penitentiary archivist. I said, do you have a photo of her? <laughs> no. <laughs> there was a portrait done of her. You probably, you read the article, when I sent you the copy of the article, I, read, yeah. I did find uh, that there was a, she had paid for a very well done portrait. It was very well thought of, 
but the artist's catalog does not indicate it. Oh. But it was in the newspapers. Now, this isn't something I got found later. It was contemporary news report relating this, but in the when I did research on the artist, I could not find any reference to it. And I tried in a museum, got into museum collections who had background in her and knew about her. They were really uncertain about this, but she might probably took it with her. Yeah. We don't know what happened. I would love to see it. Mm-hmm. How, she, how an artist would have portrayed her, much yeah. different than real life, I would think. I think it was probably a little airbrushing, uh, 1880 airbrushing. <laughs> The Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. Uh, Are there any any specific things you, questions you want to ask about her life? I'm actually just wondering now, because I think really I was able to find a little bit about sort of her earlier life in, in sort of the, the Midwest. And so the biggest question mark was what happened after. And so I'm very excited that you found some of that. And so I actually was just wondering, do you think because of this house fire, would, could there have been an aspect perhaps of suicide that, you know, she maybe set fire to the house and then, you know, like got, you know you know, really into morphine and passed out or like that was, you know, potential, you know, wasn't an accident sort of thing. She said she was going to commit suicide when she was mm-hmm. back in Moscow. Okay? Mm-hmm. The fire in the state penitentiary would have led to her suicide. Mm-hmm. That's pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. So when I wrote about it, I, I, I left it open. I said, I don't know. These are just possibilities. Did she commit suicide? She had a good job. Okay. But I don't know the extent of what her, uh, addictions were at the time. Uh, had she was she in withdrawal? I, I have no way of knowing because mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. newspapers of the time don't discuss those things. They just right. kind of give you the nuts and bolts of something, and you you have to piece everything else together knowing her yeah. past. But it was interesting that when she went on trial in Moscow, none of her past was brought up in the trial. Oh. All that information about drug addiction, about her being in and out of uh, asylum and being in a, being committed to the Keeley Institute in Forest Grove, none of that was was given. And they, if they had done that, there may have been some extent some circumstances where people said, you know, this woman is in her right mind. Let's send her directly to the asylum, not to the state penitentiary. Mm-hmm. But that was never brought up in court. So that was unfortunate. Uh, there have been some discussions of her in publications on women's rights. Uh, one book. We wrote about her. And they said, you know, if the state finally realized she was insane, why didn't they just take care of it then? Why did they send her to the penitentiary? Because the warden at the penitentiary uh, said right to the the press that he was going to break her. It didn't matter what he had to do. He's going to break her. Well, she broke him. (laughs) Warden Campbell, he finally Somebody get her out of here. Yeah, Yeah. just take take her. She's yours. That's what they finally did. That's why they call her Mad Margaret. 
doesn't somebody play her uh, in costume? Uh, they used to have some like uh, tours of the hospital, the finished entry, and somebody would be Mad Margaret. Yeah, during our Frightened Felons event. Yeah, we we really have now the story of really what she's a very unfortunate woman. Yeah, you know, I, I in the article I told you about she, her father. She said her father, her father, and mother died before she was twelve. Mm-hmm. They were dead, and she was on her own. And the funny thing about it, she said in a in a, a report to a newspaper, she said, you know, I was blind until. Till I got smallpox, and I don't know of any case where smallpox cures blindness. It might make you go blind, but it won't cure it. So she was a, she just had a past. It almost, almost her past was almost in a, a vision of what she wanted it to be, and she could explain everything away. And so, yeah, she went. Through, I, I, I would imagine she probably went through a couple of fortunes, oh, of making yeah. money and blowing it on drugs. It just, I would like to know the whole story, but I'm never going to find it. I know enough to be intrigued, but not enough to be satisfied. Can you talk more about just morphine usage and like its relation to Lewiston's history? And well, it was a plague on the American society at the time. It was so common that if you're watching any shows about, uh, there was a show on uh, PBS that was on uh, Victorian England, and they were talking about it. And in Victorian England, housewives, uh, you know, maids, you name it, uh, the upper crust, they were heavily using, you know, because it was recreational drugs, and it wasn't illegal. Uh, as I mentioned before, when when you can go to go to the store and buy Coca-Cola, and the Coca-Cola was really, it was Coke. It was Coca-Cola. It had cocaine because it was said to be good for your system, and it would calm you down. It had all this medicinal value. Now today we're saying it's ruining your health. My wife tries to get diet coke. Don't drink that stuff. But it was it was everywhere. It was absolutely everywhere. Uh, marijuana was not the big use. That that came a little later. You know that the reefer madness was a little later. Boy, cocaine and morphine and heroin were widely used. So like this, it's a problem that hasn't gone away. It's been around with us forever. It's been yeah. And then it wasn't regulated at all until right. the you know, Pure Food and Drug Administration and the Act came out in the early 20th century. You, there was not much movement toward this stuff. It was too yeah. lucrative. You know, the only way they got rid of, of the old matches, if you have an old, the old matches used to explode in their packages in the old mm-hmm. days. So the government said you can't ban them. So what they did is they, they, they were a penny a hundred. So they taxed them at two cents a hundred and they taxed it out of his existence. It forced the companies to make what we call safety matches today. That can't just spontaneously ignite what they were doing. So that's how the government. If you, if you can't you can't ban it, we'll uh, we'll run it out of business. Yes. There are a lot of little things today. We think, how did they ever think of doing that? Why did they do that? It was yeah, it was normal. Yeah. If you were to jump a hundred years in the future and go back in this conversation, you'd say, what were they thinking? You know, yeah. why would they do it that way? It's so much simpler. Why would they even? Why would they eat that kind of food, which we love today? Why do they love nachos so much? <laughs> As a historian, you ask yourself some of those kind of odd questions. Why are the fads of the 1850s so unusual to us, and we're going to be so unusual to the future? What's your process of finding a story, researching the story, and then writing something up? Like, how do you like to go about all that? Sometimes it'll be a comment. Somebody will say something to me. I have a story uh, that I haven't confirmed yet. 
Okay. A woman here in, in the valley has told me a story that her mother told her. Her mother's dead, so I can't corroborate. So this is where I'm left. Yeah. This is a story that probably didn't get any press, all right? <laughs> a local physician in Lewiston a very long time ago had a brother who was gay. Well, at the time, that was not going to go very far. So the gay brother went to his brother, the physician. He says, I've got to do something. How can I make myself fit into society? His doctor talked him into castration. Okay. All right. Now, see, now you know where they're going. It's very This is a story. And after it was done, the young man was was so distraught, so depressed, that he threw himself out of a like a four-story window of a building here in Lewiston and killed himself. Now, would I like to know the whole story? Oh, you bet I would. But can I find it in the newspapers? Nope. Not a mention. But my my source says, Steve, I swear to you, my mother knew of it. She knew the two people, the doctor and the guy that threw himself out of the window. Everything was known to me. And I said, said, you know, I cannot corroborate this story. You know, it's a story. You got a reputation to uphold. You got (laughs) it. Show me the data kind of thing, you know. And God we trust that everybody else brings data. And then they, you got to have your facts. But to answer, go back to your question, sometimes it's a comment like that. But it also is a, a follow-out threads. I'm a firm believer in watching the connections that happen inside communities. Nothing is separate. If you, I think of uh, history as like an old sweater yeah. that's been poorly knitted. And you start pulling on a thread, and all of a sudden your sleeve falls off. <laughs> it happens, and it happens in history. I'll, I'll, somebody will ask me a question. I said, "Oh, did you realize that the story you're telling has something to do with over this? Because these two families knew each other, they married each other, and there was a big scandal over the family." And they're saying, "What do you mean?" Yeah, because you said a word to me, you mentioned somebody to me, or an event, or a date, and it made a connection in my head. Mm-hmm. And that's what I try. That's why I really. Well, that's why I taught my creative thinking students. I taught creative thinking. I taught a course called Applied Imagination. It was pre-engineering, creative ideation, problem solving at very high levels of visualizing problems. Uh, Einstein would talk about these thought problems that he would give. He'd work them. He couldn't do them physically, so he'd think about them. So I trained him how to do that. And one of the keys was watch how things aren't very far out of relationship. The seven degrees of distance between things, how yeah. everybody, you and I are related so many generations back. Uh, yeah. That happens in history all of the time. And it happens in communities, especially so, because families intermarry, they buy and sell property from each other. Uh, they have businesses, they'll sell businesses, or they somebody used to have a, a little stall on the street outside of a business. You trace out those little stories, and all of a sudden stories like Margaret Hardy appear. Yeah. Yeah. They aren't very frequent, but they do appear. I just give you an example. <clears throat> Three years ago, the local museum here in Lewiston contacted me saying, you know, we have some items in the basement of our museum that we want to get rid of. And there were two big marbles. They're the, what's called a rondel, 19 inches across in 28-inch square frames. I took my uh, scale down there, and they weighed 75 pounds each. These are massive. I said, where'd they come from? Well, we got them in 1974 without any provenance. So I traced it back, and it turned out when a bank was torn down in Lewiston in 1965, an old bank built in the early 1890s, beautiful, what was called Magnesia Lithos, white magnesia stone, the the gleaming building. 
Well, it was torn down in 1965, and a local artist, whom I knew very well, she was a college professor, took him home. She took pity on him. She says, ah, I'm not going to let them throw these in the garbage. I'll take them home. She put them in her basement and forgot about them. And nine years later, said, I don't want these things anymore. So she took them down and left them on the front steps of the museum. They didn't, know what they, were. They didn't even accession them. You know, as a museum, people of museums, you put the accession numbers so you can catalog and you can trace things. Nothing. So they said, we're going to get rid of them. I said, no, don't do that. Don't do it. Yeah. Let me see them. Let me talk. Well, after three years, I finally worked it out. The works are the final, are now known. They are the last two works in existence of a famed California, well, he was raised in Massachusetts, moved to California, sculptor, who was the protege of Thomas Ball, very famous American sculptor. He was his protege. His works are absolutely comparable to Ball's works. They're just, they're like putting them right there. He dies in 1871 of tuberculosis in Oakland. These two pieces made it up to Lewiston to go into a mansion in the 1870s. And went into the bank, and the bank's torn down, and this person takes them home. Nobody knew what they were. Wow. I have two of them, okay? They're in storage here. I have an article coming out in Sculpture Review. The next issue of Sculpture Review is going to feature them. Photographs are they? When you compare them, you compare them to Thomas Ball's rondels, same size, everything, done at the same, uh, Ball's was done a little later. One of Ball's works called Whispering Zephyr is now up for sale at a gallery in New York City. Absolutely comparable. The detail on the one I have here is better than the detail on Ball's work. It's deeper, more round, more refined, everything. The Ball work is $125,000. Those two pieces were almost in the landfill. The only thing that kept them out is I started looking. I looked at a name. There was a little yeah. thing. No, there were no references to him. Very, very vague. Just a mention in an art catalog. Nobody knew anything about him, where he lived. And I said, this can't be. I've got to keep working. So I got into every research, pages of references, and reconstructed his complete life. Now I know where he's buried. What happened to his wife? And she remarried. I mean, got the whole family traced out. I have pictures of his father-in-law, his wife's second husband. We have pictures of her coming in. You think I have a picture of him? Just like Margaret Hardy. Let's face it. He was in the Union Army, was wounded at Fredericksburg, spent months in military hospitals, uh, and probably contracted tuberculosis by the time, because he went plus mustard out in 64, dies in 1871, at about the going into the tertiary stage of tuberculosis during that period, which is about, about right. But it was a thread, uh, another thread. And that's what happened. Hmm. Interesting. Going back to Margaret Hardy, so can you tell us the process of getting court orders in order to get some of these records? Sure. Well, the first one was a court order from the court in Blackfoot. I dealt through the Idaho attorney, state attorney generals. I contacted, said, you know, they're not going to release any of me. What do I do? And the attorney general for Eastern Idaho, he said, you know, Steve, the best thing to do, let's just get a quarter. It's a it's a, a friendly quarter. It's not adversarial. He said, if you'll make it, I'll send you the document. You make it out, I'll take care of it for you. So he did. And all of a sudden, I received all this documentation. Well, that got me some things in 2015. But the key was when I found out and really knew that she had adopted that child. She didn't take her. She adopted her legally. That means that record has to be in Lewiston. Right. Because the records stay here, but you can't read them. So I filed another one. I said I filed it with the Nespers County District Court here, and I got a date. 
went down and I go, I'm sitting out here with everybody else who's being shuffled through for this, that adoptions. And there were families there getting a new baby adopted and everybody Aww. happy and there were people there ready to go to prison. And you never know what you're going to see. So I finally get into the chambers and it's just the clerk and the judge. I introduced myself. The judge knew me because I've been around the community for a while. And so he said, Mr. Rang, what do you want this for? And so I was telling the story. And they were absolutely fascinated. Telling the story of Margaret Harry, what had happened. And he said, uh, okay. He just, puts, just wrote a note. And he said, here they are. He just gave me everything. Wow. You know, the, the attorneys. You know, Anna could not even sign her name. She was completely right. illiterate. So she just signs with an X. And the poor gal, I don't know. I'd sure like to know. I never found out what happened to her. She yeah. just disappeared. You know, sure. prostitutes weren't named in local newspapers. To find her was only through the only through the adoption record. That's all I how I found her. I couldn't even name her in 2015. I was able to name her. Yeah. So it took. That's how it took. You had to clear the way because she was in an institution, and then an adoption was involved. So after that, that's not too difficult. The other things can be pulled together pretty nicely. And so to find the organ stuff, did you just find that through, like, because I know that at, like, Blackfoot, they have uh, intake records in the same way that we do at the pen. Is that where they mentioned that she had been an organ, or how, how did you come across that information? All that information came out of newspapers, old okay. newspapers. They found. And I used the Library of Congress, okay. uh, Chronicling America, because they digitized right. it. I was able to get into Pendleton and the papers in Eastern Oregon and Salem, where she began to, they were just brief mentions, yeah. but they fit everything that was in the story. But it took a lot of digging around. You really, you had to say, okay, how would they have listed her? Was she right. Maggie, Margaret? Did she go, was she, was she Margaret Simpson, Hardy? They're all, what are all the combinations? And that is one of the tricks. Right. Is being a, a you really have to be a, you have to be a juggler of keywords. Yeah, Once you, really, you understand that, boy, you're just not asking the question right. Ask the right question. The answer is there. You just got to write the yeah. answer. That's the problem with computers. They only respond to the wording of the question. Mm-hmm. And if it's, it was her name backwards, Hardy, comma, Margaret. Maybe it was listed that way. So that gets you into some other records. I was shocked that I found the rest of the story. I really was. And in detail. I mean, just yeah. to find the newspapers in Aspen, Colorado, the name dirt and the pr- property. I found all the records of what she was dealing in property, buying and selling property. She had property all over Aspen, Colorado. The gal was wealthy, without a doubt, was wealthy. Got into the Sanborn collection. I don't know if you've ever used Sanborn, yeah. but they're the old fire maps. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and pull up Aspen for the time. Now you can see exactly the address where mm-hmm. her business was. It's on the map. So it really was really kind of fun to do. Boise's first Sandworm set is 1884 or five, pretty close to that. And yeah. Lewis is 1888. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. Boise was done. Boise was done first, and then uh, then Lewis was done. And uh, the ones in eight, the 1880s are absolutely invaluable yeah. because at the time, remember the tax they taxed every building, and where were the bathrooms? They were in the the three holders out back. Okay? <laughs> outhouses and that's why people want to move their toilets indoors because they were getting taxed on the buildings mm. so moving inside the house pay tax one <laughs> upgrade yeah. your house finding <laughs> got running water <laughs> scott you got any other questions on margaret that you want me to answer no i mean i think the gaps that that i had in in the story that i found i think you filled perfectly well, you, you, um, found, you found an awful lot you did a good job 
Thank you. Um, really? I, no, she's enigmatic. She is, because I think I found a census record. Uh, no, it's on our intake form that she says she was born in Utah. And so yes. um, I'm, I'm interested in the fact, and I don't know if you were able to find anything, but interested in the fact that she went first to Utah and then back to Colorado. Um, yes, how how did you find she, that? She went to Utah because I found records in, uh, some, in Aspen, Colorado, in the newspaper uh -huh. in Aspen Times. She had talked about how she had gone to at Utah first to Salt Lake City and how she was such a good customer, a good client of the big banks there. Well, yeah, I bet mm. she was. <laughs> Cash flow was good. And it was in gold. It wasn't yeah. in paper. It was in huh. gold. So that's how I found that. That it was you find all these notes are like remember the old well, the old days when you used to do research papers, you wrote everything on note cards, little mm. index cards, and you'd shuffle yeah. them around. Well, we don't have to do that anymore with computers. Yeah. I kept finding a fact here, and I'd take it, pick that fact up and move it up into the sequence, and everything started to fall out. Then. So yeah. it made sense. But her sojourn in the South Dakota, that was an interesting one, of all yeah. the property and buildings she had been doing. And then so they finally moved back to Aspen. If only she had been crazy. She would have been such a cool figure in, like, Western women's history. Yeah. And for yeah. all intents and purposes, she seemed to be a good businesswoman because she made yeah. a lot of money. She wasn't stupid. Right. She had a, she was very irrational. Every all reports of people, one one report as I wrote in that article said she was about the most notorious criminal in the United States at one time. I mean, she was just people were talking about her everywhere. People talk about you for fifty. What's it? Fifteen minutes of fame, and then all of a sudden you you fade away into in, you know insignificance. But yeah. she left really quite a legacy because being the first white woman there, it was only a few months later that the next woman came in. She had killed her yeah. husband. Yeah, I think it was, was, was it Kessler or something like yeah. that? Yeah, Josie Kessler. Yeah. Yeah, she was, she was absolutely just a great one. But boy, after Margaret, they'd, they were wondering, I can imagine they were saying, are we going to get another mad Margaret here? But she was not at all like that. No. But again, Scott, you did a great job on that. You know, well, we're, we're you. very limited. And remember, you were trying to put a lot of stuff together, and I was just laser focused on one person. Right. Yeah. I wasn't doing it. And, and I retired, and I can sit and think for three, four, five months on one person to where I just, I can dig their bones up. Because I've dug bones up. You know, I've been in, when I was a, in archaeological school, I also was the head of the team that found all the unmarked graves in the big city park here in Lister. Hmm. We found it with ground penetrating radar. We found, the, we did the soil samples and found the zinc spikes where the zinc coffins had decayed, and we were getting arsenic spikes because they embalmed with arsenic at the time. So I was involved in all that. So when I say I, I like to dig into things, people kind of laugh here because they know that we really do dig. You know, I've been in exhumations, taking field notes and drawings. You don't want to photograph. Okay? You don't, that's not proper. But good drawings, good field notes, I drew all that out too. Nice. It's fascinating. Yeah, and, and we really appreciate, you know, people like you and, and people who maybe aren't even necessarily professional historians who can access records that we can't. There are so many, like, women, for example, that we, you know, their children were kept in the children's home while they were in prison, but we don't have access to them, but their families do. And yeah. so, you know, if anyone, just a call for, if anyone, you know, professional historian, just family historian, or just you know, you're interested in whatever, if you can get those records for us would be so greatly appreciated because it really, I mean, fills in stories and that's so important to telling, um, you know, what sort of the, the kaleidoscope of, of the prison population. So, yes. And it was so at the time, 
the early days, it was so homogenous, you know, it was just all the same until a woman came. And then, I mean, do you know much about the very first woman there, the little, the little? Yeah, we know a little bit. So she was arrested for um, what they called meme loosing. We actually, M-E-M-E-L-O-O-S-I-N-G, which was basically, I think they used a, a native term to mean she killed her husband. Because she was native, she's not really mentioned in newspapers at all. The details of that are not mentioned. So she came in here into the prison. She was there for not too long before she actually escaped, walked all the way back to Blackfoot, which I think took about you know a week or so and then she was actually turned in by Indian police and then came back and served for a little bit longer before she was released um that was in 1886 yes I was was middle 1880s that's what Mm -hmm. I remember being referenced to yes yeah Yeah. you know you know the old thing about uh you know pleading their sex Mm -hmm. uh and uh uh, pleading uh, being pregnant you know there are a lot of a lot of those things were common Clear back in the buccaneer days, you know, the, the women who were mm-hmm. pirates with, with, yeah. with sex to keep them being hanged. Well, I wrote the story about Jewel Fring, who was uh, mm. who murdered the guy. You guys have probably read that story. I mean, then he kills himself in the barber shop. Yeah. I, mean, mm-hmm. I found a picture of his parents' home the other day. I was wow. looking at some old pictures, and here was the Fring home where he lived. I couldn't believe it. I was, man, it just shows That's- up. Such a fun life because I we we you know we both have always talked about that excitement of like you know there's this like one detail that would just finish something and you can't find it you can't find it and then you find it and it's just like there's almost like an uh, it's an unparalleled feeling so how very exciting that that gets to be your everyday life I'm very jealous of that. Well, my wife would when I was writing a book well one of my books I'd go in and my wife would be sitting watching television I said you won't believe what I just found and she'd say oh no you know it's like <laughs> my first book. I dedicated to my wife the first book, and I said I'm dedicated to her just to prove that I knew what I was talking about when I told her these stories. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it was, it's been fascinating work. I'm kind of given. I, I'm not writing books as much anymore because of my health. Uh, it takes a book is a very long process. Put every pieces together. Uh, a, a magazine article is a lot easier. A two thousand word magazine article I can do in like two or three weeks and do it well and really wordsmith it down to. It's like a bed; you throw a quarter and the quarter will bounce for a foot. Kind of thing. It's really tight, but I, I like doing that. That's fun to do. You have the documentation on her being entered into the state pen. Is that right, Scott? Yes. You guys have that. Yep. That was interesting. So talking about her, uh, ten, she had no school except she was literate, and uh, that she had gone to Sunday school. <laughs> she got to Mormon Sunday school, but she was an yeah. Episcopalian. I, I thought this yeah. kind of weird. Yeah, I wondered if she, and I, I mentioned this a little bit in our episode, I wonder if she, I don't know if she was trying to maybe, you know, lessen this reputation that she had, if she, you know, by claiming, oh, I was raised in Utah and I had Mormon Sunday school teaching that, oh, that's going to fix my reputation a little bit. I mean, you know, that's just speculation, but I saw that as well. And I was like, well, I don't know if that's true. I don't think but. so. I'll tell you why. Because in the 1890s, the anti-Mormon sentiment mm-hmm. in Southern Idaho was very, mm-hmm. very prominent. Right. I mean, Fred Dubois, the state senator, U.S. senator, I mean, he was five, mm-hmm. just rabidly anti-Mormon. Yeah. And you need to make no bones about it. But mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It, it was interesting to me that she, the mm-hmm. Utah connection threw me for a little bit. Yeah. I knew she wasn't from Utah. There was no way. Right. Because when you go back in the census, she was from St. Louis area. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I do wonder too, though, because um, Missouri uh, and Illinois did have some Mormon strongholds, you know, in the early, you know, the mid 1800s, and so I wonder if she she may have a little bit, but I still, you know, I think it's that's quite possible. One of those things. Yeah, yeah, you just don't know. I mean, losing her, her parents at such a young age, mm-hmm. and then just kind of she. What I I use the word hard scrabble. Yeah, she had a hard scrabble childhood that really uh, turned her into the woman she she began. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about that. Yeah. Well, Stephen, we like to end each episode with uh, with a little saying. So if I were to say, do your own time, how would you respond to that? Now, if I had to go to prison today, uh, make sure my just make sure my broadband is good enough. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty. Solitary. I mean, I I work out of my study here. I'm pretty solitary person, you know. My my yeah. little dog comes and sits down on my feet, and I patiently waits for me to give her attention. But, yeah, at 72, I've learned to be patient. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Well, thank you. It's been an honor speaking to you, Stephen. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll we'll have you back on the show sometime. Yes, God, nice meeting you. Yes, good to meet you too. Yeah, well, we'll probably you know we'll right here. But I sure had, sure did appreciate the work uh, of getting all the mug shots. I mean, when people read Wicca Lewis and they just went, oh, my goodness, where did you get these pictures? Said, Look at the tagline. That's where it came from. I said, it's all there. As you take care, have a good week. Stay Thanks. safe, everybody, okay? You too. You too. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Do your own time. Do your own number. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And new this season, we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. <laughs>